Faith Matters Podcast. I'm your host, John Morgan. Well, this is the podcast for Multi-Faith Matters. I am the host, John Moorhead, and I am privileged today to have as my guest, Caleb Graves, uh, whom I read about uh, online, and I think it was Global Baptist uh, News was uh, an email that I, I subscribed to. Let me read Caleb's uh, biography. Uh, he is a CBF minister and educator living in North Carolina. He earned a Master of Divinity degree from Duke University School and is currently pursuing a Master of Arts degree in psychology. And he's focusing his efforts on psychedelic theology. If you look in the program notes, you'll find a link to his website and some other materials, and uh, we're going to be discussing today that uh, that topic of psychedelic theology. Caleb, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here, and thanks for the opportunity. It's great to have you. You know, folks who are tuning in are probably going to think, uh, I push the envelope anyway with podcast topics and guests. Um, I, I have everything from, uh, you know, Latter-day Saints to Satanists and, and pagans and so on, but they're going to say psychic theology. What in the world does that have to do with what you pursue? And uh, uh, one thing that struck me in the the piece that you wrote was you, you're, we'll talk about this later, but just to kind of set the table, was that the church is not prepared for this idea of psychedelic theology. And of course, there are religious groups where uh, psychedelics are at the heart of that. So th- this is a cutting edge religious and theological issue, and that's why we're we're having you on the program. But let's begin with a personal note. How did you, as a Christian minister, come to pursue this central topic for yourself of psychedelic theology? What was your experience and interest in this? Well, I had previously read uh, in passing about psychedelics when I was an undergrad uh, pursuing a degree in theology, and it was fascinating to me. Um, I remember, you know, I went to school in Colorado. Uh, marijuana was legally accessible. Uh, so I remember uh, first time trying anything, smoking marijuana and reading the Bible and some other ancient texts just to see if it would alter the way that I read them, which it didn't. That's not how these things work. Uh, <laughs> that's just not. But when I came to Duke Divinity School, this would have been in uh, May of 2021, uh, I was having a really rough time. I wondered if I should even be in divinity school, if this was really what I wanted to do, um, if I even wanted to remain a Christian. It was a really difficult time for me. Uh, but after I took magic mushrooms, psilocybin mushrooms, uh, I realized at the end of the experience, which was crazy and wild and, and scary in a lot of ways, that I needed to be a better person, a better husband, and a better Christian. But when I tried to look up resources for how to integrate this experience into my day-to-day Christian life, because I was now committed to finishing seminary and remaining a Christian and remaining in ministry, there was nothing there. There was no sorts of resources that I could use that would be able to help me integrate the experience into my life. 
Well, having heard your experience, no doubt some viewers and listeners are probably chomping at the bit. But what about the Bible? What about the index? We'll, we'll get to those kinds of questions in a bit. And folks would just be patient as we work through the subject matter here. Um, for those who, who don't have any familiarity with it, can you kind of summarize some of the early history of the academic and popular treatments of psychedelics, not in terms of recreational use, but how they have explored the, this topic in terms of what it means whether for religion, psychology, what have you? Sure. Uh, so the earliest, I would say, academic uh, introduction to psychedelics would have gone all the way back to Spanish colonialism in the 16th century. Uh, a number of naturalist theologians and writers saw uh, um, psilocybin mushrooms, peyote, and some of these other psychoactive drugs and wrote about them, their effects, what they looked like in the wild, et cetera. Uh, but it really wasn't until late 19th century, moving into the 20th century, that uh, peyote and mescaline, the active ingredient in peyote, got a lot of attention. Uh, and then moving into the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s is when things really got underway. So you saw uh, 1943, uh, Albert Hoffman, who himself was a committed Christian, uh, accidentally synthesized LSD, uh, which was being used as a psychiatric treatment. Uh, moving into the 50s, you have uh, Wasson, who published an article in Life magazine about magic mushrooms and how they could also be used for therapeutic treatment. Uh, and from there, it was just a, a cascade with DMT, LSD, magic mushrooms, and other substances uh, to try to see what not only how they could be useful therapeutically, but what they could tell us about philosophy, theology, psychology, and any number of different fields. Now, uh, has there in the present has there been uh, maybe a renewed interest in exploring these things uh, academically that parallels the the, the recreational, the increase in recreational use of these drugs? I think there's a recognition um, since after things sort of went off the rails in the 60s and 70s and these substances largely were criminalized, uh, even going so far as to be identified as more dangerous, wrongly so, this has no medical backing, but identified as more dangerous than cocaine. Uh there's a renewed understanding that we need to go back to indigenous practitioners who use these substances and the wisdom traditions that they might be able to provide for us. So when we're looking at these categories of like clinical, medicinal, and recreational use, that split binary really doesn't exist when we're talking about psychedelics anymore. There's an understanding that these things can be used therapeutically, they can be used spiritually, they can be used just for fun, uh, they can be used by indigenous people to keep their culture alive. So there's a wide variety of different ways that psychedelics are used that don't really fall in current research into purely medicinal or purely recreational. Well, let's move from, from kind of that background and that foundation to a discussion of the, the experiences themselves. Um, I found a, in doing some prep work for our conversation, I found this really interesting article by Jules Evans uh, titled Caves All the Way Down. And what was interesting about that article was the author acknowledged that they had used uh, psychedelics and found them helpful, um, that they leaned more towards uh, 
kind of a universal experience, a non-duality kind of thing. But yet the, uh, the author was critical at the same time that that majority interpretation of perspective is the only one. Can you talk about there? There are not only uh, dualists, but not the the, the non-dualist tends to be the one that's presented as the truth about the experience, but there are also other experiences as well. Yeah. So I think the issue that arises here, um, one of the things that psychedelics does neurologically, I think leans towards the non-dualist perspective as an easy interpretation. Uh, psychedelics disrupt the way that the brain relates to itself and the different parts of the brain talk to itself. Um, which can disrupt one's sense of self completely so that there is no sense of self compared to the outside world. But it can also interrupt one's understanding of uh, how one relates to themselves. Uh, so it's, it's easy to have the non-dualist interpretation, but that's hardly the only one. Uh, in the 1962 Good Friday experiment in which seminarians and staff members from Boston uh, University were given psilocybin, the active ingredient in magic mushrooms, everybody there described the experiences in this experiment in explicitly Christian fashion. Uh, Howard Thurman was the preacher, and he was aware of the uh, uh, experiment being done that day. And yeah, everyone's experience was explicitly Christian. They read the Bible. They prayed the Psalms. They played in Christ the Lord is risen today on the organ. They praised the Lord for uh, uh, his death and resurrection, but also his coming at the end of days. So these there are ways to interpret this explicitly in, in Christian fashions, but also in all sorts of different ways. I think the way that we prep ourselves, the expectations we have for what this experience will give, largely determines the sort of experience that we have. Um, this is called set and setting, or mindset and setting the physical surroundings in which we take a substance. So if you have the mindset that you're going to have some sort of new age, non-dualist, monist experience, and you take it with friends or a uh, unlicensed shaman who has that context for you, you're going to have an experience you interpret as non-dualist. But if you're part of the Native American church, for instance, uh, which is a syncretic uh, Christian faith with pan-indigenous religion, you're going to interpret in, in pretty explicitly dualist Christian terms. Uh, so again, largely the context and mindset and background you take to the trip uh, dictates how you're going to interpret it. So you kind of teased that out a little bit further. Some of what I read talked about uh, how one interprets the entities that one may encounter is also related to culture bound and, and religion bound types of things. So you're, I think some want to view these experiences as one is tapping into an unmediated, pure, uh, culture free, bias free kinds of things. But I don't know that there is any anything uh, such as an objective experience. We all bring something to it. So even uh, uh, local indigenous uh, tribes and so on will bring their perspective to these experiences. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. And I think I think what you've touched on here is very important. Where um, the perennial interpretation growing out of uh, um, 
sort of the Ivy Leagues of psychedelics in the 1960s and 70s was supposedly this great universal moral truth that was behind all religions, was behind psychedelic experiences. But as I've, I've written myself, this universal truth, quote unquote, looks a whole lot like liberal Protestantism in the 1960s. Mm. Uh, so it's really easy for us to universalize, especially with powerful experiences. It's easy to universalize our experience, think that this is the ultimate truth, instead of recognizing that we've brought our own background into these experiences. Well, as you know, we've in America and the West, we're, we're going through this interesting period of uh, secularization, but it, it's not necessarily equated with atheism. Uh, it, it's moving away from uh, the credibility or perceived credibility of religious institutions, more towards an individualized spiritual quest. People are looking for new ways of re-enchanting the world. Uh how do psychedelic experiences challenge a materialist understanding of the world and provide perhaps another way to re-enchant the world for people? Yeah, so we've seen in a number of different studies that ingestion of psychedelics can affect our metaphysical outlook on the world. Uh, that doesn't mean that if you take magic mushrooms or LSD for treatment of PTSD, for instance, or anxiety, this doesn't mean you're going to walk out the other side a Buddhist or a Christian or an atheist or something just because you have this experience. But what it does show is that it shakes people's metaphysical mores. So uh, one study from John Hopkins found that belief in angels or other spiritual beings, belief in afterlife, that among psychedelic users, this increased about 35% by about a third compared to the compared to before they tried psychedelic drugs. Uh, there's been some studies showing that it can push people to become Christians or theists instead of atheists because the experiences that they have are, are mind-blowing. Uh, it's difficult for people who have not had psychedelics to understand this. Um, but I met uh, one person not long ago who said that on a DMT trip, they met a being of pure love and light and beauty who held them in their arms and said that they weren't what their abusive parents had told them they were. And from this experience, they started going to church. It was solely from this experience that they decided, I need to pursue spiritual life. Uh, and came into an evangelical church just downtown from where we both live. So it can be just the experience of the psychedelic substance itself, a change in a sense of self, changes in our senses, changes in our cognition. Uh, people report visiting the many Buddha lands or, or meeting Jesus Christ himself, or one atheist I spoke to uh, met uh, seemingly met the Virgin Mary in this experience. So if you have had these stories about religion, but you don't believe these stories, and then these stories are quite vividly brought to life right before your eyes, it's harder to ignore those things. Um, one additional point that I like to bring up to people is that it's easy to believe that psychedelics are just ha something that happens inside the brain, that it's just drugs. But whether or not it is just a psychological, neurological uh, occurrence, people consistently report experiences that have uh, 
they have evidence that these experiences were real outside of the trip. So you might have someone that I was spoke to a few months ago who had an experience where they seemingly met Jesus Christ and uh, Christ gave him some uh, insights into ancient texts that he didn't even know existed. And when he went to look up these texts after the trip, not only was he shocked to learn that they exist, but he was shocked to learn that their contents matched what he had experienced during this trip. Now, that's hard to explain away. You can, if you really want to, say that perhaps he fell asleep one night watching a History Channel documentary that mentioned these manuscripts. But that's difficult to do. But whether or not you believe these stories isn't the point. The point is that these stories affect people. That people walk away thinking, I can't explain this rationally through purely scientific means. It's time to look elsewhere as a, a well for knowledge for how to live my life. Now, for, for me, one of the reasons why I find this so interesting, I've spent some time the last few years looking at uh, the neuroscience of religious belief. And uh, of course, uh, the brain is involved in that process. There have been some that might be a, a bit reductionistic in finding the so-called, you know, God part of the brain where one can stimulate uh, an allegedly uh, supernatural experience. But it just makes sense to me that it, it, since we are embodied beings, uh, if there is a realm beyond the material, that it must interact with the material in the process. So the cognitive science of religion, as well as psychedelic theology, raises questions about ontology and epistemology. What's the nature of reality and how do we know? Um, what kinds of tools are available and what kind of research has been done to try and, and understand these experiences? Yeah, Uh so there's been a great deal of research about this, um, but it's still really relegated to a small number of people. Uh, I read a great book, uh, Psychedelics and Philosophy from Bloomsbury Press, uh, that addresses this. Hmm. Uh, and the sort of issues that are being talked about, um, I think it's very interesting, are, are very are very Christian issues, whether or not they use Christian language. So one article I looked at was whether psychedelic drugs are distorting reality. Mm -hmm. Are you viewing something about reality or is this a distortion, a lie that you are self-imposing upon yourself? And the summation of this article was that uh, psychedelics don't actually distort reality, that reality as we experience it through our senses is is largely subjective. Uh, we're familiar with the idea of qualia, of course, that uh, the sense experience we have is a combination of the physical world and our physical senses, but also uh, 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 psychological ideas, the idea of the color blue, the idea of the taste of grain, something like that. And then it's a, it's a special matching point where it's not quite physical and it's not quite just idealist. Um, those are the sorts of ideas that we're dealing with in psychedelics as well, is asking, uh, can this purely be something that's happening inside of our heads, or is it somewhere in the middle there? How does the mind relate to the body? Let's talk about, uh, this is the part where we get into looking at some of the objections that Christians often bring and, and some of the uh, assumptions to it. Um 
I remember during the uh, COVID uh, vaccine debates, some Christians were were citing uh, certain biblical texts in Galatians and Revelation, Pharmacaea, and so on. They were trying to make the case that biblically you shouldn't be involved in it because it's connected with sorcery and these kinds of things. And I can see some Christians might want to use those kinds of texts as an argument against the Christian use of psychedelics, connecting it with the possibility of supernatural evil and so on. However, um, the use of psychedelics is not completely foreign to the Judeo-Christian tradition. Uh, it was interesting that uh, they found a Judahite shrine, uh, or, you know, the, the temple structure set up where there were remnants of uh, THC that had been used uh, in that process. So there is some kind of connection there. Can you speak to some of the biblical and theological objections that Christians might have about this? For sure. Uh, so when it comes to pharmakeia, uh, I believe it's Galatians 5.20 uh, is what's frequently brought up the most. Uh, it's interesting that God's word translation explicitly renders this as drug use. It, it makes a direct correlation between any use of substances today and uh, pharmakeia in the past. But when we look at what pharmakeia was in historical context, uh, it was a specific type of plant magic or plant sorcery, which was designed to draw power from the gods or from sort of dark, less mainstream sources to affect the world. Uh, so St. Jerome condemns in his commentary on Galatians, condemns pharmakeia, not simply because it's magic, because it was magic uh, uh, for, for sexual and romantic things, uh, that this was not what God would want is for us to, to uh, manipulate people into loving us. Uh, but there's also just the general sense that you shouldn't be looking to other sources beyond God for power. And you shouldn't be using sources of magic to try to control the world around you. Uh, so I, I find it uh, very difficult to imagine that anybody could actually practice pharmacaea today, especially in a Christian context. If, if you recognize these as medicine from God, as things that can treat PTSD, anxiety, depression, migraines, chronic illness... Uh, as opposed to trying to look to Apollos to help you through a specific ritual using a specific plant that has to grow in a part of a graveyard. Uh, it's You just can't really practice pharmacaea with psychedelics today. Um, but it's interesting that... Uh, it's interesting that this is a situation where drug use isn't particularly well liked throughout Christian tradition. Uh, and I, I personally think that this does go back to pharmakeia, but not when we see it in the canonical Bible. When we look in the book of Enoch, which we know was, if not canonical, well-respected in early Christianity, uh, pharmakeia was taught to the daughters of men by the fallen sons of God, the angels. And so it was a dark magic, a, a black magic, for lack of a better word, that was being taught to human beings in order to participate in demonic ritual. Um, and so we have seen that every time a new substance arrives on the, on the scene in Christianity, there has to be a tug and a pull uh, about how they're going to integrate this into faith. This was the case with chocolate because it was associated with the blood of Mesoamerican deities. This is associated with tobacco, again, with Mesoamerica, coffee, 
had a little bit of a taboo around it because it was associated with Islam and with Muslims. Uh, Kat is a amphetamine containing plant in Africa that is again largely condemned because it's associated with Islam. Uh, it's the issue of trying to make sure that the substances that are being used don't get one associated with outsiders, those outside of the church. But I think there still is a good amount of history showing that Christians can engage with substance use in a mindful and in a uh, educated and a very practical way. So as you just mentioned, Telerod in, uh, I believe it's the 9th century or 10th century, uh, somewhere in there, uh, temple in uh, Judah that was discovered that had THC and other substances that were burned, not just somewhere in the temple, but in the holiest of holies of the temple. It was an offering to God that was being given there. And as you bounce forward, it might be shocking for some people to learn uh, that frankincense is a, is a very psychoactive drug that we now know causes anti-anxiety properties, relaxation. So if you've ever been perhaps to a, a, a church that particularly likes its incense, and that church is just thick with the fog of, of frankincense or myrrh or something similar, uh, that is psychoactively affecting the people who are taking part in this church service. And then when you go forward after the horrors of Spanish colonialism, when Christians, uh, largely condemn psychedelics, we still nonetheless see that laws allowed for medicinal use of peyote, medicinal use of magic mushrooms, uh, and that the church was largely not worried about these substances as long as they weren't being used in a way that they considered to be dangerous. Uh, they were still considered medicines, and some Christian theologians even suggested that they were special medicines God had given to the indigenous people as an alternative to the Eucharist. Uh, so there's always been this strand of Christianity uh, reaching back even into ancient times with Jewish practices, uh, where substance use is still there. It's being used mindfully, it's being used curiously, and it's being used both to heal the mind, the body, and even the spirit. Well, if uh, coffee is forbidden theologically, I'm in big trouble. So thankfully, we need to be a little more discerning there. But it sounds to me like uh, sometimes I run across in, in Christian writing and so on and commentary, these fairly simplistic black and white kinds of biblical and theological analysis on various topics. For example, they'll say the Bible forbids all forms of divination. Uh, but if you look carefully at the biblical tradition, there are instances of divination that are approved. And the issue seems to be whether or not one is seeking guidance uh, in terms of seeking out Yahweh rather than through pagan gods and so on. So I think this parallels, if, if I'm understanding you correctly, we need to look a little more carefully at, at what scripture is actually saying and look at the history of how the church has understood that. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. It is very easy to read into scripture and to read into church history, our modern world. But as we know, the scriptures are two to 3,000 year old texts written in three dead languages in cultures completely different than our own. And if you're sitting on the East Coast like I am, they were written by people who are five to 6,000 miles away from me. 
So it, I think it's really dangerous in all topics, not just this one, to try to apply our modern world to the ancient text instead of asking what are the holy scriptures trying to tell us? What was what what was what they were meant to say in the ancient world to the ancient people, and in what ways can this still be used as wisdom for our present lives? Well, to kind of return to something that I mentioned at the top uh, about how the church is unprepared for the the implications of psychedelic theology. We now have psychedelic chaplains, uh, psychedelic churches. And again, in prepping for this conversation, doing a Google search, I live in Salt, outside the greater Salt Lake City area. And I discovered a church in Salt Lake City founded by former Latter-day Saints that were, that's a psychedelic church. I never would have thought that that was the case. But of course, there are other psychedelic churches uh, that incorporate uh, other indigenous religions and so on. As you've mentioned, it's being used to treat PTSD and anxiety and all kinds of things. So when you wrote in that article that the church is unprepared for this, are these the kinds of things you have in mind? In, in what ways is the church? I think one person said the church always specializes in being behind. Are, are <laughs> we behind in this and, and how can we be better prepared? I think we are very behind in this and not just behind in this. I think there is a tidal wave of change right at our backs. And we've only just now turned around and recognized that it exists. Um, one, one study that I saw that was done by the U.S. government showed that over 8% of young people, being 18 to 30, I believe, reported using psychedelics within the past year. That is a lot of that is a lot of recreational use. And that comes from the decriminalization that we've seen happen in Oregon, in Colorado, throughout uh, Wisconsin and Michigan, Washington, D.C., Oakland, uh, California just introduced a bill to decriminalize psychedelics. So I, it's absolutely the case that we have uh, clinical medicinal changes that are coming. But also like marijuana, this is simply going to come at a decriminalized, legalized level that virtually anybody can take this. So we're seeing an unprecedented increase in use of these substances, both clinically, culturally, spiritually, uh, uh, and recreationally. And I just do not think that the church is ready for this. Um, the image that has stuck in my mind uh, was when I met this person that told me about when they met uh, Jesus in a being of light on DMT, what if they hadn't talked to me? What if they had talked to your pastor? What if they had talked to you as a pastor? Would you have been ready to tell them? Uh, would you, what would you have told them? Would you be ready to talk about this at all? And I just don't think we're there. So I think we definitely need to have um, professional uh, uh, training for psychedelics for Christians. I'd love to see a network of pastors nationwide as this is used clinically or if this is used recreationally where therapists and clinicians can say, hey, you said you had some deeply religious Christian experiences that happens to be a minister in your area who is licensed to talk about this or that we know has passed uh, uh, their certificate to help you with this. Would you like to talk to them? At the same time, I would just like pastors and Christians nationwide to get ready 
I mean, your grandson or your nephew or your own dad or grandpa could be the one who is coming to you, whether you're a minister or not, and saying, hey, I've tried this, or the VA says this might be a good treatment or something like that. What do you think? All Christians and ministers need to be ready for what's about to change, what's coming. Which opens the door for you, Caleb. What do you hope that uh, your research, your work uh, at your website, again, look at the the podcast notes, folks, to, to get in touch with what Caleb is doing. What do you hope to bring through your ministry and what additional resources should people seek out to learn more about this? Yeah, for sure. Um I really am trying to do some low context, low buy-in work for people who might be culturally Christian, but not terribly theologically literate, uh, but also work with Christians of all theological education levels. Um, But the issue that I see coming with Christian interpretation of psychedelics for greater culture is that if you don't have a master's level education or above, I don't know how you're going to understand a lot of the things being written right now. So I want to make sure if this is a 21-year-old who took acid at a festival uh, and now wants to come back to church, that they can read an article I've written or an an Instagram post or a Facebook reel and uh, be able to get something out of it for their faith. That's where I see my work being. Now, there are far more educated people than I who are also starting to get into this. just had a talk yesterday with Dr. Uh, McCarthy from uh, Pittsburgh, who wrote a great article called Christianity and Psychedelics, a pa- Psychedelic Medicine, a Pastoral Approach. That is a great article that just came out that I would suggest reading. Um, I also love, and I mentioned previously, Philosophy and Psychedelics, uh, Frameworks for Exceptional Experience that's published by, by Bloomsbury. And then I also particularly like DMT and the Soul of Prophecy by Rick Strassman. Um, And while I have serious criticisms for this next book, uh, Sacred Knowledge by Dr. William Richards, who works at Johns Hopkins University, uh, I have criticisms of his theological interpretation, but I think that he has a phenomenal book to introducing Christians and everyone to what sorts of experiences can psychedelics cause and how can they change the mind. That is all fascinating work, and uh, I'm sure uh, I'm going to keep in touch with your work, keep tabs on it, and is I'm sure events will unfold, and uh, there will be relevant topics to come back and explore future conversations. But hopefully, this is a, a good introduction that isn't too scary for uh, people who are watching and listening to this podcast. I appreciate it, Caleb. Definitely. Thanks for having me on. It's great. Again, this is the podcast for Multi Faith Matters. Thanks for watching and listening. Please check the program notes for how you can get in touch with uh, Caleb's work and learn more about psychedelic theology until the next episode. Thanks for watching and listening.